as soon as you step onto or the, the journey of yoga, it's, it tells you immediately your true nature, right? So we're not really looking for our true nature. We're reconnecting with it because we've lost it over the, over the years that we've grown up. Now it is to understand how do I get back to it? And how I get back to it is all up in the mind and in my identities that, oh, Savira did this, or I am this. I need to get away from it in order for me to figure out what is the wisdom here? What am I going to learn and how is it going to help me? That takes time. That takes practice. That is tapas. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, and these are my conversations with sadhaks, satsangis, and other spiritual seekers. Join us as we discuss and discover what it means to live a spiritual life and walk the yogi's path. Each week, you'll gain insights into your own practice as we share the stories and wisdom of those that walk the path with us. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. And we're back. I'm really excited to introduce this week's guest, Savira Gupta. Savira comes from a family of strong women rooted in the Arya Samaj tradition, which was founded in 1875 by Swami Dayananda Saraswati, who wanted to revive the Vedic way of life and the need to create a just society for all, despite color, caste, or creed. Savira spent her childhood in Malaysia, formative years in India, teenage years in France, and adult years both in the UK and USA, and believes that this has given her the foundation to relate to people from all walks of life. Using a Vedantic approach into self-inquiry within the realm of yoga and life has been her practice for several years. This led her to establish her own training, Art of Svadhyaya, through Yin and Hatha Yoga. Savira believes in education and bringing awareness within Western yoga on how yoga is more than just asana. It is a way of life, highlighting the importance and the lack of the presence of Indic yoga teachers within the yoga industry. As of April 2021, Savira has walked away from the yoga industry to pursue and deepen her own studies and sadhana further. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast, Savira. I'm so, so excited to have you here as a guest. Um, I'm just really thankful you took the time to meet with me and share your wisdom with the listeners. And in my research for the show, I had the pleasure of reading some of your writings and listening to you on a few podcasts. And wow, I'm just really blown away by your, not only your knowledge of yogic wisdom and Vedic philosophy, but also the warmth and ease with which you uh, assert it online where I came across you, but also the way you clearly live it, which I think is, it's almost rare to see that on social media and in yoga land, as you call it, which I love that you call it that because it is like... <laughs> Um, so I just really wanted to acknowledge you and appreciate you for that. And um, like I mentioned before we pressed record, I know you have so much insight for Western yoga teachers such as myself, which is important in the context of modern yoga. But this show is not meant for the yoga teachers specifically, but rather the sadhaks and the seekers. So I know that you are that. So I want to start by asking you, where does your spiritual journey begin? So before I begin, let me thank, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. And I like the way you've um, arranged or uh, created the podcast to be more of uh, simple conversations between uh, yourself and myself, not necessarily geared towards teachers per se. So I actually started my spiritual practice in California. Um, I was learning yoga from uh, a wonderful yoga teacher who then encouraged me to take the training. So I did my training in Santa Barbara, but I didn't want to become a teacher. That was the furthest thing that I wanted from my life. Um, but as you know, in order to receive the certificate, you have to teach for a certain number of hours. So anyway, so I did that. I 
And one thing led to another and I became a yoga teacher. Um, when I started out, it was more based on the physical practice. So more based on alignment, how to get into a posture, how to come out of a posture. So I learned everything I could about the body and the posture, which was a great, uh, which was a great information to take away from the West. But I felt empty after the classes. And that's when I went back to India to do another training. And this time it was more on the philosophy and how to live the practice. So after I did that, I began to understand what my own tradition was all about. See, I was born in Malaysia. So I, the first few years I didn't grow up in India, but I had my parents who kept um, teaching us about our scriptures, about uh, our practice in general, not just yoga, but life practices, um, practices about respect, uh, charity work, practices about how to deal with people, how to watch our emotions and the fluctuations of our mind. So again, one thing led to another, I became a lead teacher, moved into teaching training in India, um, and then I found yin yoga. And I would say yin yoga is the one that catapulted, that really took me into the deeper aspect of my practice. Um, so I kept studying. I was encouraged to study, um, moved from the philosophy to the Gita and to other aspects of, um, of what I could find to nourish me. Um, and that sort of started my journey on the mat per se. But the actual practice, um, I would say, started in 2009, more towards 2009, November, when uh, my father-in-law became seriously ill. And that's when I moved back to India to take care of him. And that is when my spiritual practice began. I know in your bio, um, you mentioned that your family comes from the Arya Samaj tradition. Is that right? Could, yes. Yeah. Could you, and I, I, I really caught my eye because I hadn't heard of it before. I did read a little bit about it, that it's very much rooted in um, the Vedic traditions and the Vedas. Um, but I did love that the point that, uh, about the strong women in your family. Could you speak yeah. more to that of what that was like growing up in that tradition? And were you always that seeker? Like, even though you did your teacher training much later, was there always that curiosity, that seeker in you growing up? Well, my uh, grandmother was modern before the times and was the uh, strength in the family. So the Arya Samaj tradition didn't really believe much in, um, let's say, that only men can do the puja or recite the mantras. Uh, in fact, my, my uh, grandmother, she learned all the mantras. In fact, she would be called or invited to do pujas in other people's houses. Um, she ran the household. She, she did the finances. She would teach us. And that went into my mom, who was a very strong woman herself. So I've grown up with strong women in my life. My aunts are strong people, um, in, in all aspects, in whether it is challenging lifestyle, change of lifestyle, what is important as we grow up as women, and more so how to stand our, on our own two feet. So uh, that's something my grandmother always said, never depend on a man, always stand on your own two feet, even if it means finding money, trying to save after your grocery shopping, putting it away, getting a little piggy bank, do it, but never depend on, on a man. So, yeah. <laughs> she sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, she was. She was <laughs> right till the very end. Um, and so we, the Arya Samaj tradition was very much against the caste system, the uh, sati, which is um, in the olden days, what they did was the, 
when the husband passed away, then the bride or the, the wife would uh, give up herself to the fire. So they were against many of these traditions and wanted to live more towards the Vedic way of lifestyle, where um, women and men had equal footing. And so, yeah, so this was the, the tradition that I grew up with. Wow, very modern. And it sounds also like you had such a diverse upbringing. I'm wondering what it was like for you, uh, you're of Indian origin, but going back to India to study yoga after studying yoga in the West and what that experience was for you. I know, speaking from my own experience of doing a yoga teacher training in India, but almost feeling like it was geared towards Westerners was like this flip side of yoga being taught for Westerners from India. And there, there is a kind of sense somewhere things are getting flipped. Right. So what I... My takeaway from learning in India was uh, understanding how yoga uh, was just not for the mat. It was for every day. Every minute of your life is a practice of yoga. And when I went back to the U.S., what I realized that is the Western yoga system would take the practice but miss out on the components of how it becomes a way of life. So every little action that we have has a meaning behind it. And all that was taken out. So you, it's like saying, I'm going to take away the, the yoke and make a meringue out of it. It's not possible, right? You just can't do that. So uh, simple things, for example, we will never touch a book with our feet because if you think from the yogic perspective, the book and I have divinity. We are divine. We are one and the same, right? Book is made out of paper, paper made out of wood. Wood comes from earth. Likewise, I am water. I'm also made out of the earth because my ashes will go back to the earth. So if you look at that understanding, that's how yoga is incorporated into every action of our life. Now, that understanding is missing within the Western world. And when you you have this amazing, unique standpoint that you're, you have your foot in both worlds, you're rooted, you're seeped in your traditions, but you also have this broad worldly view. And how has that been for your sadhana, for your experience of traveling all over the world and living? Well, it sounds like you've lived all over the world. But having that root, that groundedness, I mean, I know it come, probably comes too from the women in your family, the way you were raised, but your own spiritual practices, how has observing the kind of the disconnect, the the watered downness of yoga and other places, has that impacted your own spiritual practices? Well, both my parents, my father was a philosopher, very much again rooted in the scriptures. He didn't practice yoga as you and I know. Whereas mom was down to earth, pragmatic, practical, saw things from a different lens. So I had both of those um, teachers who really strongly grounded me. Um, that not to say that I haven't been swept off my feet before. Yes, I have. I've had to experience that, go through those things before realizing, you know, that that doesn't sit with me. So the idea of me having traveled, lived in different countries was to get a perspective and understanding of different cultures. And really what I've understood is that we all want the same thing but we're so rooted in our own identity, in our own views and ideas that we're not ready to let go of. And so that began my practice was to really understand what is it that I can let go of or how do I work towards it? It was a, a learning experience. Plus I've had a few incidents or experiences, major experiences in my life that have really changed um, my whole view and the way I see things and, and the way I, I think 
uh, and I've, I've come down to this, is that we like to have an ideal world, but it's not, it will never happen. And unless we understand that and accept that first, it's very difficult to move beyond that. So we've got to be pragmatic, yet know what we can change and what we cannot change, what is in our hands, what is not in our hands. Mm-hmm. That may, just you speaking that reminded me of the article which you wrote for Yoga Journal. I think it's called Yoga is Not Political, but I loved <laughs> how you expressed in there how so often people in the yoga world, or probably even people that are just reading or interpreting the Gita, how there can be a misconception of the story of Arjuna and Krishna, and it kind of sounds like exactly that. Like, I'm wondering if if your understanding of the scriptures like the Gita, if that has helped you come to that point of um, revelation in your journey? Uh, it has taken me a while. It's not something that I've studied or picked up and said, okay, now I know it all. I've had to go through major changes in my life. And I one day sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to have to incorporate or start using the scriptures to see how it will benefit me or help me. And um, the first thing that I needed was faith. Hmm. And if my faith was rocky, my practice was rocky. If my faith was strong and steady, I noticed that my my practice was also strong and steady. And I'm not talking about practice on the mat. I'm talking in life. Mm-hmm. It's, um, so, yeah. it's so interesting that you brought up faith. It was like one of my questions next was about Shraddha and faith. And because in my own practice, it's something I see exactly that that comes up. If when I'm lacking that conviction, that faith in 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 the wisdom and in the practice of of the unity of knowing that oneness that is all. If I, when I lack that faith, I also notice in myself. So I was curious to ask you about that. Um, anyways, and I'm wondering if you can expand on some of those experiences, what you've had, which led you to sort of the grace of of having faith. I know everybody in the world, in life, we all go through difficult times, but so rare is the one that can use those challenging times to come out stronger, more expanded on the other side. Going back to 2010, when I was looking after my father-in-law, I read in the Gita about saying, doing your duty, not expecting the results, not worrying about what will happen, but just do your duty. And that is what I brought into my life in regards to him. So for three months, every day, going to the hospital, sitting there with him, talking to him and coming back. I just did that for three months. And it Initially, you have that hesitancy. Why should I make it a duty? Why should I put energy into something I I don't want to do? But I found that overall in time, that doesn't become duty. That becomes an action from the heart. You want to do it. Not because there's something to gain at the end, but because it is the right thing to do. And it gave him peace and it gave me peace. Um, so I worked hard on that first initially. So when the incident with my parents happened, that conviction and faith that I brought into my life was how am I going to deal with this now? And, you know, the questions about death, where do they go? What happens? I was more at peace with the answers Um, Not to say that the human emotion wasn't there. As a daughter, I wasn't disturbed or upset or angry. I had those. But I also had the faith that they're never gone. They're here. So combining both of those, um, I found that easier to merge. My look, if I had to step away and look at myself as a daughter, I had different emotions. 
But if I looked at myself as a practitioner, having faith in what I'm practicing and learning, I found the two combined and it healed the daughter. Mm. It comforted the daughter. So I found that is what happens when you have faith. That totally answered the question and just shows how um, expanded life can be for one who does this work because most people, not most people, I don't know about that, but so many people <laughs> that we get stuck in the identification of daughter and like you expressing like having to do something that you don't want to do. It's so rare as a person that steps up and does their duty and goes out of the personal preference and it's something that's written in the Gita. It's the whole example of Krish, of Arjuna who's stuck and yeah. paralyzed because he doesn't want to do it. And that's where most people get stuck on the path. We get stuck and that causes so much suffering. But it's such a beautiful example of the power of having the practice that you could watch and nurture yourself through that experience, but also have the expanded view that knows that it's something greater. It, it does. So, I mean, we are living in modern times. So some things, of course, we will see things differently. Now we're living in a very interesting time. There's so much happening. But I found that when we understand the scriptures from that Indic, from the true essence, we are able to move through life a much easier, relatively easier or with a little more understanding, knowing your place, knowing when is the right time to stir the pot per se, or knowing when is the right time to step back or step in, knowing what you can do that even if it is me helping the person in front of me, that is still part of my practice. I may not be able to do something major, but I can start with small steps. And I found in, in, in the times we're living, we're demanding others to do take bigger steps, which is tough, difficult, sometimes not relatable. So I, I, I think, I mean, that's just my personal opinion, is one step at a time, it'll get you there. But the journey is never easy. Mm-hmm. Um, my teacher, he very often just would remind us little by little. And I kind of sometimes make that my mantra, just knowing little by little, because which isn't necessarily a yogic, um, profound <laughs> Mahavakya, but it's, I think it just can get forgotten. Like the whole, the world, it, we are in such an unusual time and the dualistic nature, the polarities, the divide yeah. is so extreme and in one way, I get inspired when I see how many people are interested in yoga. And um, I traveled around with Wanderlust, the yoga festival, for many years as a vendor. And I, I always would have these mixed feelings because I would see all these people at this yoga festival. And I thought, wow, okay, in one way, this is amazing because people are drawn towards something. But you mm -hmm. would see how watered down, how commercialized and capitalistic the whole thing was and that I would get disheartened. But I think it's also, we are in the modern times, but wondering if you could speak to your opinion or your thoughts on where is the place now? Like, how do we get from here to here as yoga practitioners and those that are interested in, in coming to that point that is in the middle? <laughs> That's a tough question, um, but, but a good one. Again, I'm going to give it to you from, from my perspective. I think we need to come back to the roots. So right now we're focusing so much on, not on, on where yoga comes from, who can teach yoga, who cannot teach yoga, what you need to teach, what needs to be in it. These are just the tip of the iceberg, these are, this will not help us to zoom in. What we really need to start focusing on is the essence of the practice, yeah. the truth of the practice, that first of all, we must accept and understand and 
realize that yoga is about moksha, moksha liberation from those fluctuations of the mind, right? That's one aspect. Yoga is also in action from the Bhagavad Gita aspect. Yoga is also body, mind. Where do we want our practice to be? If we want to live in this world, and if we, like you and and myself, we are earning, we are working, we have responsibilities, we have family. So my life right now is at this stage. So my practice needs to involve that connection with me and myself, myself and my family, myself and others, myself and nature, myself and whatever the governing laws are. So it encompasses, you know, it, it includes all of that. And right now what's happening is that we are more geared to, we're more focused on representation, it matters, but we've put most of our energy into decolonizing movements, representation movements, equity movements that we've forgotten that it first has to start with the individual. Uh, that's that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it makes sense when we think of, you know, like I love the example of the stone in the pond. Like the strongest impact is actually right there where the stone meets the water and then it just naturally trickles out. And right, when you right. when you talk about coming back to the roots of yoga, or even the roots of our own practice, our own understanding, you mentioned about the scriptures, coming to the scriptures like the Gita or even the Yoga Sutras, but from the in, Indic lens. And I'm wondering if you yeah. can speak to that, speak to you know someone such as myself who culturally and uh, you know. Now I read the Gita and I love it, but I know when I first came to it as someone who was just curious about yoga, or it's kind of a bit overwhelming, but yet there's so much truth in it. There's so, it's so important if one is going to practice yoga to at least have a curiosity or some kind of interest to the roots of it, which come from scriptures like the Gita. So what do you think about that? Our scriptures always have context. And so it's important to understand, read, and study within that context. Mm. Not take the scriptures and then say, this is what I think it is, and this is now the teaching. We have to view it from the Vedic lens or from yoga's lens. If we are viewing it from our own perspective, we have attached identities, attached views and ideas already imprinted in our mind. So when we look at the scriptures, we're going to look at it from that aspect. Mm-hmm. And we need to move away from that, from that Western, I say Western, and I mean this Western training is all over the world. Not It doesn't exist just in the West, it's all over. More so in, in the yoga, in yoga land. So we have to step away from that for a bit look at it from the Indic Indic or Vedic lens. Once you've understood it through the Vedic lens, now how can I incorporate it into my modern lens? The two understanding is very different. So you first got to understand the basic fundamental, the foundation from which it was taught, then bring it to adapt it in your Western way of life or modern way of life. Mm-hmm. When I think of that, it, it it seems like yet another way to practice um, de-identification, like reading it from that lens, not the uh, the view, viewpoint of of my own preconceptions of this is my opinion right. or this is what I want to get from this or it almost just in the practice of reading the scriptures or studying any of the yogic or Vedic wisdom from that lens, it almost already takes one out of oneself and opens the the seeker or the student up to let the wisdom come on to us as it's meant to. Like I also love the image of the 
um, of the nectar, like just the shower, the wisdom of Krishna getting just dri dripped and drenched uh, on Arjuna. And, and, it, we, yeah. and if we can come to it with that openness, with that emptiness almost, then wow, how much can we get filled by that and illuminate our own practice and our own self-inquiry? True. I mean, as soon as you step onto or the, the journey of yoga, it's, it tells you immediately your true nature, right? So we're not really looking for our true nature. We're reconnecting with it because we've lost it over the, over the years that we've grown up. Now it is to understand how do I get back to it? And how I get back to it is all up in the mind and in my identities that, oh, Savira did this, or I am this. I need to get away from it in order for me to figure out what is the wisdom here? What am I going to learn and how is it going to help me? That takes time. That takes practice. That is tapas. Hmm. Yeah. That is like, discipline. Yeah. And I loved how you kind of just made me think of like the remembering, like we're uncovering the veil of ignorance through that practice. And I remember my teacher I was reading the Gita I was going through like a terrible time and I was really identifying as if with Arjuna one who's struggling in the mind and stuck and he said you should never read the Gita as Arjuna you read the Gita as Krishna because that is your true nature you are the Krishna being and totally like again then I read it again and it flipped it on yeah. its head again and how the scriptures and the practices and even just the community just being in conversations like this it just how the wisdom and the knowledge can just keep keep coming and coming and coming and in whatever ways that we're ready to hear that we need to hear i think it's it, it is because i've read and studied and i'm still studying the gita and every time i get into it i look at it it's, it's different. It reveals something else. But what I found is that it took me a while to understand mentally what my true nature is. But it has taken me and it is still taking me a long time to imbibe that. I want to be able to feel it, touch it, sense it. That is the practice. You see, that, that whole thing is there are moments where I can find myself observing me or there are moments I can I, I can sense there's something else besides Savira once you taste that then the practice changes completely then you're more aware and more mindful as you go through you know arguments when you go through discernments, when you go through your writing, when you have a bad day or a good day, you know, you become more aware, ah, okay, I need to step back, I need to observe, I need to watch. And so for me, that is my practice. Mm -hmm. And you just, you made a point there that it was a, an aha for me about how the practice changes. And I just know, speaking from my own experience, sometimes I actually get stuck in this um, concept of right and wrong, which is just totally dualistic by nature and counterintuitive, but I see that it's my tendency to get, this is my practice, I do my asana, I do my pranayama, you know, and it can almost become rigid, yeah. and, and that kind of speaks to the maturity of your practice, that you are so fluid and can flow, and can you speak to maybe some experiences of how your practice has evolved and changed since you can remember? Um, <laughs> I really can't put a finger to it, but I've had people tell me, more so uh, close family members who've said, my God, Savira, you're not the same. You know, you've changed. You're more um, calmer, patient, or... I used to be very reactive. I'm not. So I, I, I tend to just watch, observe my emotions, see where it takes me. Um, and there are things where family members will say, you know, how come this doesn't bother you? And it used to bother. So 
The feedback is what I'm getting from others. The feedback I have from myself is that um, I have a small, every time something happens, there's a little humor in my head that, you know, I, I try to keep things funny, humorous, because, you know, um, or I question myself, okay, so yeah, I'm going to die. What is it that I want out, out of it before I die? So my questions are more of that. It's more um, realistic. It's more, uh, I don't think of things five years from now. I think of things, okay, tomorrow, that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen after that. Um, but I have a sense, uh, there's a playfulness in my life. That's how I've seen my practice change. I, I don't take myself too seriously. I'd say that's a good uh, <laughs> nugget of wisdom. Actually, someone else that I had interviewed for this podcast was had said that, you know, where wisdom starts and humor begins, he said that they overlap. And when you can come to that place. I think it is a good lesson because we quite often get so serious and get stuck and, you know, how rare is the person that can think about death and almost, um, you know, laugh and feel light and, and and when contemplating it and knowing we don't know what tomorrow will bring and um, <laughs> it kind of speaks to the power of the yogi that can look at life and death at the same so- time. I'll, I'll give you an example. I woke up this morning and I just sat in my bed and suddenly this thing came to my head. Well, you're going to die. So what are you going to do with all the things you have? And I started saying, oh, hmm, maybe I should start making a note and say, okay, this will go to this child. This will go to that child. Put <laughs> it all, get it all organized so that, they, you know, they don't have to worry and I can just go away and, and be in peace. And, and then I told myself, you know, I don't need anything. What for? I don't need so much. And then I thought, I just want to enjoy life. Do what I can, do what is required for me, do what is needed from me. But I want to enjoy at the same time. Mm-hmm. This was my that, that <laughs> aha moment. <laughs> just today when living in the moment. <laughs> And this is a good segue into my next question because I really like I went down a rabbit hole yesterday just reading your blog post and I just so really appreciate your um, expression and in the blog post I read yesterday which was your most recent one it was titled why modern yoga is without purpose and direction which already <laughs> I was like oh she's like speaking my mind here um, but you you wrote beautifully about Ishvari Pranidhana which is a practice I often also feel drawn to and I'm wondering how it shows up in your sadhana and if you can expand on its significance for one who's on the yogi's path or the sadhak's path so we we did touch on this for me Ishvari Pranidhana is faith is that it's a sense of, for me, it's more of a sense of having that unshaken faith in who I am, in, in what I want to achieve in life, in where I want to move or flow in life, but faith in that the practice will guide me. So it's not waking up in the morning, do yoga, and then carry on with life. Or there are days where I may not even have a physical practice. But I know that faith is there with me continuously. I've gone through moments where I've pushed it aside and I've seen how I've suffered. And there are moments where I've accepted it. But the last year or so is where I've really... For me, I'm drenched in it. I believe in the practice so much that I don't have to, I'm not worried. And I'm not talking about 
the worry of life or where life will take us. Of course, there is that. We all worry a little bit, but I have faith that the practice will guide me to the actions that is required of me. Mm-hmm. When we think of, like, also in that blog post, you mentioned how Ishvari Pranidhan is not practiced in most uh, modern yoga, which I also can definitely attest to that. Um, that I never had even come across that concept in probably 10 years of yoga until I came to India and went into study in the ashram. But I want, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on just even the concept, like where is the space for, because without the practice, without the understanding of surrendering and having the faith to God, which even to use the word God in a yoga studio is like forbidden and taboo, which is the whole um, (laughs) practice of that and surrendering to God or higher power, whatever language people want to put onto it. Um, What is your thoughts on that like obviously it's something that's so you're so seeped in and I know you've walked away from um, the yoga land right now but where what place do you think that has for people that are drawn to yoga and they're drawn to spirituality and they're seeking something more they're seeking that Ishvar they're seeking God but there's no space for it in the yoga studio so what would you say or how could would you encourage someone to take on that practice if it's not so common in yoga spaces well it's the practitioner to take it on right i i may have that faith but i can plant a seed or i can share you share the experiences but it's up to you to either water it and allow it to grow or you can say for the time being it's not for me i'm going to put it aside mm-hmm that is something you're going to ha- you as a practitioner or a teacher you will have to discover it you will have to work towards it right now we we are I, what i see in yoga land is okay you have to do the niyamas and the yamas you have to learn this and you have to it's very structured there's no fluidity there's no ability to move in and out without feeling oh my God, you haven't done this. So you're appropriating the practice. So we've got these strong boundaries that are preventing us from moving outward. And we need to break those boundaries in order to discover that Ishwar within us. We're going to have to do the work. I did the work. I struggled. And Nothing was handed to me on a, on a silver platter. I had to figure it out for myself. And until the practitioner figures it out for themselves, that, that essence, that strong faith, you can't develop it unless mm-hmm. you've walked through it. But as teachers, we can plant the seed. I can't water it for you. Mm-hmm. And then as for the practitioner, I guess that is a part of walking the path is developing the discernment um, to know which yoga teacher to move towards and which spaces to move away from. And I think just even watering, like you said, or encouraging that kind of self-autonomy um, over our own practice because if one doesn't take their own autonomy, then we will just get overwhelmed with, you know, the body obsessed vinyasa classes and the, the, the yoga that is so devoid of like the spiritual aspect. But also understand, you know, a mature practice is there some days your practice will be physical, mm-hmm. purely physical. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And some days your practice will purely be about reading it it's always at different it walks uh, takes you on a different path so you and if you have faith in your practice you will follow that and not judge yourself so on one hand we're saying 
yoga is not this. But on the other hand, we're also creating an atmosphere of judging ourselves because now we know yoga has been watered down. Now we cannot. Yeah. We cannot do that because it's it's a no. We haven't given ourselves space to discover what works, what doesn't work. And we haven't given our space, uh, ourselves space to understand the scriptures through that yogic lens. Very important. Again, that reminds me of before when you said about that the sadhana is changing and that it does again speak to the maturity also of the spiritual growth. If one can build the tool belt, if you will, of practices, which is asana and pranayama and, and all the different um, practices which we have that we know we can call on when we're, say, in a more tamzik state, then we know we can call on this practice and actually to start expanding the awareness but also expanding the tools so that we can remember it is all yoga If rather than saying this is it and this isn't. Right, but uh, the other aspect, we're forgetting the individual. So going back, if we look at the structure, look at ourselves as an individual, we all have needs, desires, we all want to earn, support ourselves, and at the same time, we go through different stages in our life. But what's happening in, in within the Western or modern yoga is that there's so much focus on what the practice is and what you should include that we've forgotten the individual. The stage that I'm in, my actions, my focus, my dharma will be very different to yours. So if we have a, a practice saying you've got to do niyamas, yamas, you've got to do this and this in your practice and you've got to do that, it may not work for me in that stage of my life, but it may work for you. Mm-hmm. So we have to allow this is this concept of purushatas into our practice, right? We all want to support our family. We all want to live a good life. We all want to do the right thing. But at the same time, we are different individuals with different imprints, past imprints, past memories. How do we work around that? And we also go through different stages in our life. So now we need to include that. And dharma changes as we progress in life. And speaking as if to a Westerner, but like you said, it's anywhere in in yoga lands. One is, how can one be curious and explore the systems of yoga, but still be respectful of the traditions and the way that yoga was meant to be, or traditionally shared and um, learned? But still having the individual, but being respectful of the of the whole. How could one stay in a, an integrity with that? Two things. It's a culture that's very different from Western culture, and it's difficult to expect another culture to fully imbibe something that doesn't belong to them or does is not part of them. So there will be ups and downs there. But the good way, the best way would be first to understand what that culture is about. So you go back to understanding politics, economics, the social structure. How did it come about? Why is it as complicated? Because let me tell you, the Political side is very complicating. Even a a Hindu like me or an Indian like me, I go down a rabbit hole. So nothing is black and white. Life is gray. So maybe reading up uh, about the culture, about the people, just to get some kind of idea what makes them tick. (laughs) Right? So it's like me going to um, Malaysia. I had to understand First of all, I I learned the language because I was born there. So I learned the language. I had to understand the culture. I never got it right all the time, but I tried to take in as much as I can. 
and likewise, when I came to the West, I did the same thing. It was like, understand it from their perspective. And again, I, I, I probably did something right, did not do something right, but we learned through these experiences. When we have read, discovered, researched, understood what the culture is, then I think we have a better understanding of how not to appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, life is such that you're going to see good things, not so good things, great things, not so great things. But what matters is your action and how you respect the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, to me, if you as an individual, if I see you and then you're respecting my culture, that's great. I love it. But I'm, I'm not going to, I won't expect everyone to do the same thing. Because mm-hmm. that's, taking my expectations too high. Yeah. Right. So one person at a time. I know like speaking from my own experience, I've spent a few years in India now and I've gone back and forth so many times and I just so much I love about the culture, but I've also after so long um, sort of surrendered to the fact that there's so much I'll never get because I'm not Indian and that doesn't mean I want to stop learning because I love the culture and I love so much of it, but coming to the, just being realistic in the sense that I'm Canadian, I'm from a different background and I can only share and express the knowledge of the Vedas and yoga and all of that in, in a capacity, which might be my full capacity, but that's for, I don't personally want to, show that I'm know something that I don't and um I hope that that would be con- con- not considered but enough in the sense that we do the best we can but also just surrendering to the fact that there's only so much one can understand of a different culture and sort of going to the essence like you said I love the word essence of the scriptures and of the yogic philosophy, which is sort of before and after that as well. Well, here's a little secret. Not every Indian knows everything, right? Especially many of us who've grown or who were born and brought up outside India, many of us still don't know a lot of what's going on in our own country. Now, I spent so many years living in India, I made the effort to learn And a lot of things that I took for granted or I thought it was this way when I was living in India, uh, it wasn't the case. So, yes, there are many Hindus, many Indians, South Asians um, who also make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So you're not the only one. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess even in India, there's so many subcultures within a subculture, like from north to south. It's like a different place anyways. And. Um, it just kind of like takes humanity and and, and uh, intensifies it anyways. So, yeah, I mean, it. Look at the number of states that we have. It's so diverse, culturally also very diverse. What happens in the north may not happen in the south. One big celebration, Diwali, may be celebrated very differently in the north and very differently in the south or the east or the west. So. And that's the beauty of of India, right? So we need to understand that when someone talks about India and say, oh, this is it, I I just take it with a pinch of salt because I know the country. Yeah. I've seen the diverse culture. um, And it's like, okay, is this going to bother me? No. No. So here's the other thing. I pick and choose my battles. Uh, I've I've learned that not everything is going to go the way I think it should. So I pick and choose which topics, which subjects are dear to me. And those are the ones I I stay and and, uh, advocate or push Mm -hmm. or fight for. (laughs) Yeah. 
And and just to go back to the diversity of India, I think what all of India is that unites it from an outsider point of view is the essence, which is seeped in the country, in the continent, in the land. You can land in India as a spiritual person and you get the essence of India, which is just that that oneness and that unity amongst the diversity. And I think if we can just take that even as yoga practitioners. That, I would say right now, what India is going through, she's going through a, a, a rough time with so much of disharmony happening mm. around, in, in India itself. So I think when we say, yes, there is an overall unity that we see from the outside. But if you look closer on the inside, there's a lot that's happening right now in the political world in, in mm. India. That's a subject I will not touch because it is, how would I say, it is vast, complicated. It is not as simple as many would like to say it is. Um, because we have so many political parties, many elections, different states have different laws, so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like every country, there is something happening in each country. Look in, in the US, for example, mm-hmm. what's happened there. Europe is going through a tough time. India is going through a tough time. So, yeah, I think the world is going through a strong crisis. And rather than further create division, we need to figure out a way of um, coming together. Mm -hmm. And when you say you pick and choose your battles about the topics which are important to you, in terms of your own yoga practice, your own sadhana, what, you know, just off the top of your head, are those (laughs) topics which are important to you? Well, scriptures, how they're taught. Um, For me, this, uh, who to learn from, the kind of teachers. um, These are the things that are important for me. Uh, Women's rights, women, because I come from a, a family of strong women. So yeah, anything to do with uplifting women, um, empowering women is is what i'll focus on but if they, on the other hand if it cancel culture name calling dis- disrespecting all of that or those are the things i will not stand for mm-hmm. and i'd rather step away from those because those kind of in, those are do more harm than good mm-hmm. so I'd rather be in a in an area where I can can help uplift where something can happen from it as opposed to like the social media scene where everybody is just pulling each one down that's why my my visibility on on social media is also very <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but when you do post, you post like nuggets <laughs> of like amazing wisdom. So keep up, keep those up, please, for us, <laughs> for us that are just we're thirsty for some meaningful social media consumption or content. You know, so I'm really thankful for your feed and all the insight oh, you thank you you share on there. And I'm. Last couple points here. I'm wondering, in your opinion, what's holding people back from sadhana and self-inquiry? Again, personally, I think we're in the stage or phase of life or phase where it is the blind leading the blind. So rather than step away on your own and be ostracized, or singled out, we want to be together, thinking this is where it's going to, we're doing right, or we're moving forward. And sometimes I think that does more harm and takes the person away from focusing on their own sadhana. Yeah, Yeah, it goes back to your point about coming back to the individual. 
And yeah. so often I think we can get carried away when we're in this polarized environment, which it's no fault of our own, but it can seem like more of a climb to get out of that, to even come to the point of disillusionment, to want to inquire yeah. what else is right. there. Right. And you may realize that even when you do your own sadhana, um, you can still help or do right what's wrong, but in a different way as well. You don't have to do it exactly like everybody else is doing it. Mm -hmm. There are many yeah. ways to fix what's right, uh, what's wrong. Mm -hmm. My teacher would also always say, um, there's many paths to the same source. Yeah. And I also remember that when I get in that right and wrong sense. <laughs> Just to wind up, for all any curious yogis out there, what final words of wisdom would you have for their sadhana or their spiritual seeking? Do the work yourself. I mean, you have support. There is a great support system out there, but do the work yourself. Really get your hands dirty and find out. Beautiful. It's, it's, it's so rare, which I think is also why the, the true earnest sadhak is rare, because it's hard to get the hands dirty, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's been such a beautiful conversation, Sabir. I really appreciate your diverse perspective and your angles and just where you're at in the way that you express. And I think it's going to be an inspiring conversation for those that are curious as to what are the deeper elements of yoga and how can we get there. And it's also inspiring and uplifting to know there there's others out there. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Bobby. I really, really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Curious Yogi Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps the show reach more people. Or share on social, and of course, follow on your favorite podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. I appreciate the love, and I appreciate you. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the yogi's path together. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.